Job 42, 10-17 After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. All his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to him and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold earring. So the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep and goats, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, his second Keziah, and his third Karen Habuk. No woman as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land, and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Hey, church family, Pastor Aaron here. Uh, Grateful to have this opportunity today to teach from God's Word and bring our uh, journey through the book of Job to a conclusion. We are going to be uh, in Job chapter 42, verses 10 and beyond to the end of the book. And uh, just briefly by way of introduction, I'm excited next week. Uh, we are going to be jumping into a longer, like like nine-month-long study of the book of, of Acts. Um, I think it will be really important for us as a church community. Uh, it'll be really important for us to see, as, as we have recently gone through a church merger, it'll be really interesting to look at these early churches, these early followers of Jesus, to learn lessons that we can uh, we can apply to being a, a healthy church. There's both positive and negative examples. Uh, and it's also important for us as we really focus on the idea of living out on mission. We said, you know, that this church merger that we went through, uh, we want to do it only if it helps to see God's kingdom come here in the North Puget Sound uh, in greater measure. And so looking at the book of Acts will help us uh, as, we, as we seek to be on mission and uh, as we seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit and his presence. And I'm grateful for uh, a few of our other elders, as well as our good friend Rabbi Matt uh, to kick off the series, give me a few weeks uh, uh, of a break here before we kind of head into the fall. And so uh, I know you're going to be richly blessed by hearing each of these uh, teach for you. And so you guys can pray for me and my family as we get a little bit of downtime. And uh, let's be praying for us as a church community as we head off on mission. But today we're going to uh, really focus in at the end of the book of Job and the way that this story comes to a conclusion. And so let's let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to help us uh, see what it is that he wants to see in these words. God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that uh, you you are very honest with us in the pages of the Bible. There is no sugarcoating the hard realities of this broken world and the the pains that we experience in this life. And yet, Lord God, throughout it all, you offer, you, you more than offer, you promise that you will be present with us when we have placed our trust in you. And so, God, I pray today you would help me to teach with clarity Don't let me say anything that is contrary to the truth of your word. And Lord, give us all receptive hearts. Holy Spirit, bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds that we might live in this present age with the hope of the new creation in our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, friends, there is a controversy in the Gray household, and it all centers around one movie, a very provocative and controversial film called La La Land. 
it's, if you're not familiar with La La Land, it's a musical. Uh, it's a lot of singing, a lot of dancing. Uh, Pastor Kyle, by the way, loves musicals. If you ever invite the Hackett family over, make sure that you uh, offer to play a musical for him. He loves them so much. But this musical, you know, it has the feel of kind of the old-timey Hollywood stuff. It's set in the Hollywood Hills. In fact, we went uh, as a family vacation recently uh, to uh, the Hollywood Hills and kind of looked at some of the spots there because my, my girls really love, uh, love seeing that. But the controversy in our household has to do with the ending. The ending of the movie, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's, it's on the sad ending side of things. You know, we've come to expect that a certain type of movie, a romantic movie like that, romantic movie like that with singing and dancing, should have a more happy end. But it's a more sad end. And I like it, and one of my daughters likes it, and uh, my wife hates it, and one of our other daughters really hates it. And so, you know, it's, it's controversial. And, and it's interesting to think, though, like the, the kind of um, expectations we have going into a movie like that. There's so, some of it has to do with personality type. Some of it also just has to do with, you know, kind of history, the, the ebbs and flows of, of our culture. I was thinking just kind of in some very broad strokes about the push and the pull between optimism and pessimism or even cynicism in American culture. And you can read about these, these different waves and the way the pendulum kind of swings from, from, you know, the, the optimism of westward expansion to the pessimism of World War I and the Great Depression to the optimism following World War II. We defeated the bad guys. We're going to go live the American dream and the economy is booming to the pessimism of the, of the 60s into the 70s of, of civil rights injustices and the assassination of President Kennedy followed by the Vietnam War and we're just mired in, in cynicism. And then, and then optimism comes back roaring in the 80s. You know, the Iron Curtain falls and, and President uh, Reagan wins in this landslide and and there's hair metal and everything is just big and up. And then you get back into the 90s and there's all sorts of cynicism and postmodern pessimism. And you got the, the grunge movement and, and hip hop culture really moving into the mainstream where a lot of African-Americans are talking about, hey, life is, life is not particularly good for us here in these good old United States. And you've got another presidential scandal of, with, with uh, Clinton and the, the impeachment proceedings. And we just have this kind of back and forth in our culture. Do we expect happiness? Do we expect expect uh, sadness? Do we expect things to get better? Do we expect things to get worse? And, and we, we live in this push and pull culturally, but we as different individuals, we also have different personality types. And I think that it affects how we experience the ending of the book of Job. Job chapter 42, verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, you remember that the Lord commanded the friends to make a sacrifice and Job prayed for them, acting in a mediatorial role for them. After this, the Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. Well, that's nice. Great. I guess all the, all the you know, hardship and everything, it's all just fine then, right? I have a, a buddy of mine who's he's not, a, not a follower of Jesus, but he was raised uh, in a Christian environment and knows things about the Bible. Talking about Job, he's like, well, you know, hey, Job, sorry about your dead kids. Here's 10 more. Like just kind of this cynical sort of approach to it, whereas others can come to this and be like, isn't this great? Job persevered and he, he held on to the Lord and see, it's this nice, happy ending. And so some of you are going to kind of roll your eyes a little bit when you come to the ending of the book of Job. Really? 
so neat and tidy. Oh, you know, sorry about all the hardship, but now everything's okay. And others of you are going to be like, oh, this is so great. We should, we should lean in and we should expect a happy ending, you know, in, in, in the trials and the things that we go through in life. And, and my premise today really is that the ending of the book of Job actually holds both together in tension. The book of Job and the ending of the book of Job does not in any way, shape, or form gloss over the genuine tragedy and hardship in Job's life. And yet at the same time, it does have hope so that we cannot give place to cynicism and just wallow in misery. And so the big idea of of what I hope for us to see today is that there is a way to live and experience hardship that is both sorrowful and hopeful. We can, we can hold these two things at the same time that we are, we are people who do not have to gloss over the hardships of life. We can name them for what they really are. And yet at the same time, we can know our God in such a way that we have deep hope and even dare I say optimism for the future. So let me show you what I mean. I want to start with this blessing of sympathy from his brothers and sisters. Verse 11 says, All his brothers, sisters, and former acquaintances came to him and dined with him in his house. They sympathized with him and comforted him concerning all the adversity the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold earring. Now, there's, we're actually learning here about yet even more hardship that Job went through. It's not just that he went through financial ruin. It's not just that his children died. It's not just that he had a physical disease and suffering. But we're now learning also at the very end of the book of Job that all of his more broader community, his extended family and even uh, former acquaintances, they all had abandoned him at the same time. Nobody came around. Where have they been this whole time? And, and, and why did they shrink away? Why did they pull back? And, and we're not given a, an answer to this. I, I think that the likely answer is something having to do with the retribution theology that we've talked about. Here they see a man in the throes of suffering. Here they see a man who is, who is going through all of this horrific stuff and it is likely because of the theological uh, framework that we see that the friends are operating on that they thought, well, he is obviously cursed by God. We should probably stay away so we don't get wrapped up in his suffering as well. But now, here at the end of the story, they come back. And while we have already heard that the Lord is going to restore his fortunes and double his previous possessions, it doesn't mean that it's like a light switch and now everything is okay. It's, it's this sense here of ongoing discussion. They're dining with him. They're having meals together and they're sympathizing with him. They're comforting him. They're talking through all the different adversities. Like this is not just a, you know, a light bulb that goes off and now everything's bright and chipper and happy again. There still are some sad notes at the end of the book of Job. And so we need to acknowledge, I'm going to, I'm going to lean in on the more 
pessimistic side for just a minute here. We need to acknowledge that the book of Job, particularly the ending of the book of Job, does not guarantee that when we go through suffering, it will all turn out for good in this life. Think about the Apostle Paul at the beginning of the book of or, uh, yeah, Philippians where he's saying, you know, I, I expect and I hope that this is all going to turn out for my good, but I actually don't know. I might die. I might, be, I might, I might die and then I'll be with the Lord, which is good. But I think I'm going to be with you guys. Like he, he, he's living in this reality of like, I don't have uh, an answer to how this is all going to turn out. And, and, and friends, if you'll allow me for a moment, it's, it's in these types of conversations that one particular New Testament verse gets brought up all the time. And that's a very famous verse, Romans 8, 28. The whole God will work all things together for good. And, and first of all, the problem is a lot of people leave off the end. God will work all things together for good, uh, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. This is a promise and a guarantee for believers. And sometimes people leave off that ending. <clears throat> but there's also a misreading of it where we basically use that verse to say that in this life, even when things are hard, and even when things are difficult, it's going to be okay. It's going to get better even right here and right now. The traditional translation, there's a translation thing. I, I just want you to consider. I want you to ponder. In the translation, uh, most traditionally, it's something like, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The working together is a, is a Greek verb, uh, synergeo. Synergeo. It's, it's not a particularly common verb, but you could probably even hear it, like synergy, right? This working together. And so there's a question in the translation of Romans 8, 28 as to who or what is doing the working together. So I went and did a little bit of study. This verb only appears five times total in the New Testament, so our Romans 8, 28. But four other places, Mark 16 it says, the disciples went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So here the verb is used of the Lord and the disciples in partnership together. 1 Corinthians 16, the Apostle Paul uses it. And he's, he's talking about good leaders in the church. And he says, you, you should submit to such people and to everyone who works and labors with them. So here it's a human partnership. We've got these church leaders and they've got these partners and they're synergizing, they're, they're synergeo, working together and you should follow their leadership. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse one, the, the ending of chapter five is the famous, uh, pretty well-known verse about, you know, uh, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Like we are, we are on this mission to let people know about what God is saying. And so second Corinthians six, one says, working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. So here again, it's this idea of divine and human partnership. And then in the book of James is the last one where, where James, you know, he addresses this whole idea of faith and works and the controversy. And he says, he says that faith was active together with works. It's, it's the same verb, synergeo. So I ask you again, in Romans eight twenty eight, who or what is working together. Who or what is working together? Is it the all things or might it be God and us working together? 
there's a scholar, uh, her name is Haley Gorenson Jacob. She actually is uh, at a university in Spokane. And obviously she's younger with a name like Haley. It's just kind of a dead giveaway. She has written a, a book, her, her doctoral dissertation is on Romans 8, 28 through 30, talking about the idea of the, the glory that we share with Christ, that he gives to us. And she suggests that most of our modern translations translate it as all things work together because after the Reformation, people were scared, people were nervous about translating it that God and us would be working together <clears throat> because the whole focus of the Protestant Reformation was rightly that God is the one who saves sinners. Our moral efforts don't contribute anything to our salvation. We are saved by a sheer act of grace. And that is right, and that is true, and that is a beautiful focus of the Protestant Reformation. But she hypothesizes that that at times have led people to be a little bit skittish about verses that might look like, like instead of monergism, synergism, that we're working together with God. And so this, this verse in Romans 8.28 is not talking about us working together with God for salvation. Jesus has saved us. The context of Romans 8, of Romans 8 in, in general is God has saved us and he's poured out his spirit into our hearts and he's given us a spirit of adoption, but we are waiting for the restoration of all things. And we know that things are still broken, but one day there is a, a good and a beautiful future coming for us. And so while we wait, God is working with us in all all sorts of things, the good things of life and the awful things of life. God is working with those who love him and are called according to his purpose for good. The, the case could be made. In fact, some translations do it this way, like the revised standard version, say that we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And I, I belabor this point a little bit because I really want us to avoid doing something that is, it is not Christian or biblical doctrine. And that is attributing evil to God. We can be tempted to attribute evil to God, or we can also be tempted to say, here's this bad and this tragic thing, but really it's this good thing. It's this horrible, awful thing. But actually, if you think about it, it's a good thing because God is working together, all things together for good. Friends, the Bible is crystal clear about a few things. Number one, the Bible is crystal clear that God is not the author of evil. In him, there is no shadow. In him, there is no darkness. God is not tempted by evil. God is not the author of evil. There are some, even Christian theologians, who would try to make God's internal essence dualistic, as though both good and bad live within him. And that is just flatly incongruent with the, the, the teachings of the scriptures about the nature and the character of our God. He is not evil, but the Bible is also very clear that in his sovereignty, he has created a world in which heavenly beings and human beings can and have rebelled against him. And therefore there is much brokenness 
And there is much evil and there is much pain. And God is not the author of it, but in his sovereignty, he has allowed it to be such that, that we would use our, our agency, our, our moral responsibility. At times we would use it for good. But the Bible is also very clear that one day those things will be done away with. And right now, God is partnering with us. He is working with us, us who love him and are called according to his purpose to bring about good, even in really difficult things. Francis Schaeffer makes makes this point. uh, Well, he says this. He says, it is not that in some magical way, everything really is fine, even when our observation and experience sees and feels the sorrows of this present world. Everything is not fine. That's, that's Buddhism, not Christianity. Oh, this pain is just an illusion. It's, no, it's really, really bad. So it's not that in some magical way everything is fine. No, it is because God is the infinite God that he is, that in spite of the abnormality of all things, he can, in the midst of the battle, bring good for his people out of abnormality. David Bartlett, uh, Baptist minister and and, uh, theologian at Yale, I believe it was, he writes this. He says, Christians do not need to say that every tragedy or loss is part of God's plan. We can say that in every tragedy or loss, God is still God and moves our lives and all of history towards what is good. Even when contemplating the enormous tragedies of human history, natural disaster, or human viciousness, faith reminds us that God is still at work in the midst of evil, working toward the good. The question, why did God let this happen, is unanswerable. But the questions we may begin to answer are, What can God do with this evil to bring about the good? And how can we be God's partners, servants in the work? God is only good. Bad things are bad things. And yet, God is working with us, those who love him and are called according to his purpose, to bring about good even in the midst of things that really are horrible and awful. It's a hard tension to live in, but friends, I think it's worth it. It helps us to avoid either just cynicism and and despair, and it also helps us avoid glossing over the genuine pains and tragedies in this fallen world. We see now that God does bless Job with possessions again. One of the goods that God brings back into Job's life is financial uh, resources. It says that each one of these friends gave him a piece of silver and a gold earring. And then verse 12, so the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life even more than the first. He owned 14,000 sheep and goats, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Now, 
in the ancient Near Eastern world from which this comes, this would have been just a, 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 a clear signal for the writer to communicate to the audience that this person is living under the favor and the blessing of the Lord. It's just, it's just a way that they could see it. Like, this is how we know that God loves uh, Job, is he is financially blessed. I, I just have a few observations on this. One of the things that's really interesting to me is that the financial blessing actually starts out through the friends. Job's restoration comes through the generosity of the people in his community. They are partnering with God in the midst of all the evil. They are partnering with God to bring blessing back into Job's life. What an awesome thought that is. And I would say for some of you, again, let me, let me push against cynicism here for a minute. For some of you, you know, we are rightly concerned that, that money, you know, money is the root of all evil, all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You're rightly concerned that, well, this is just kind of going back to the, to the whole thing at the beginning. Didn't, didn't we already say that like Job only serves God because he, because he uh, uh, blesses him so much? And well, now we're just right back in the same conundrum again. But you need to remember, it is not wrong to have money or possessions. The Bible describes people who are wealthy, who are righteous, and the Bible describes people who are poor, who are righteous. The the issue is faithfulness and, and obedience to God, not how much money you have. Yes, money can be a trap, but poverty can also be a trap. There's a verse in Proverbs 31 that talks about, Lord, give me neither, neither uh, uh, riches nor poverty. If I'm too rich, I might get prideful in my heart and not think I need you. If I get too poor, I might get desperate and start to steal and dishonor your name. So Lord, let me just be kind of comfortable and not worried about it. Or I think about the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 4 where he talks about, I've learned how to live in plenty or in lack. I, I, can, I can make do in all sorts of circumstances. I can, I can uh, you know, have money and not have money. And then, you know, Paul quotes Tim Tebow and he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That was a joke. Paul wrote that. The whole idea there being that no matter what the circumstances, I can learn how to be content and I can learn how to live a life of faithfulness to God. And so when Job receives his possessions back, This is not a good job for persevering, Job. Now you get a little, you know, you get the hookup here. This is God out of the overflowing goodness of his nature and generosity of his heart. He blesses Job as a sheer act of grace. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, they they did a podcast episode on the book of Job and he says it this way. I, I like the way he says it. He says, but now you interpret the reward differently because the reward you realize isn't owed to Job, but it is simply God's gift to Job. He could have not done it, and he could have done it. We know now how God runs the universe. He could have done it, he could have not done it, and we interpret this not through recompense like Job earned this. We interpret it now as in God's wisdom and generosity, he gifts Job with abundance and joy once again. So friends, Job, remember early on, he said the thing that he feared the most, he feared the loss of all of this stuff. And he went through it. And now on the other side, God is teaching him to enjoy it differently. So, so part of dealing with the hardships and the tragedies of life, you know, we've talked about 
not glossing over them. Part of it is learning how to enjoy those things in life that are good. I recently read through the book of Ecclesiastes and there's a lot of that in Ecclesiastes. Look, life is really hard. You know, those moments of enjoyment, enjoy them, give thanks to God. Learning how to enjoy as a gift of God's grace, not as a reward for good behavior. And part of the way that I know that Job is, is experiencing them different is the way that he shares these blessings. Here's the last verses of the book of Job. Verse 13. He also had seven sons and three daughters. So 10 more children. And then something really unusual happens here. Verse 14. He named his first daughter Jemima, his second Keziah, and his third Karen Hapuch. So of the 10 kids, only the daughters are named. And it says here that no women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land. Beautiful daughters would be another way in the ancient Near Eastern world of signaling this guy is just blessed. In fact, their names that are, that are listed here, um, they're not particularly theological. They're the names of like flowers or sweet smelling things. It's just, it just reinforces their, their attractiveness. And then even more shocking is this. No women as beautiful as Job's daughters could be found in all the land and their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Okay, if only naming the daughters was shocking, this is really shocking. And two, the ancient mind, this would signal excessive abundance. Like this guy is now so rich, he's got so much money that he, as a person who has been radically transformed by the personal presence of God, he looks at his daughters and goes, you know what? I've got so much. I want to give you women who did not have property rights or shares in the inheritance in the ancient world. I'm going to give you women the same share as your brothers. This is lavish, excessive grace that Job bestows upon his family. And friends, I, I can't help but see a bit of a new covenant foreshadowing. You know, the, the spirit of God being poured out on both men and women or, you know, uh, the, the salvation like in Galatians chapter four, it's not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile slave or free male or a female, all are Abraham's seed and heirs and inheritance according to the promise. Some new covenant stuff is going on here. I love it. It's so beautiful that, that Job, <clears throat> his generosity would extend to those who in their culture would have been viewed as weaker or lesser. <clears throat> and even though he suffered tremendously, we do see him praying for his friends. And we see him hosting dinners. And we see him giving money to his kids and even giving money to prioritize those who would have been seen as lesser in the culture. Job is not just sitting around wallowing in all of his pains and his miseries. He is actively working for the good of those in his life. One of the, one of the best ways to deal with the pains and the tragedies of life is to love and serve others. Sometimes it helps us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to, to give and to serve. So we've seen these things, right? We've seen 
We've seen, let's not gloss over it. Let's not, let's not sugarcoat it. Let's just be real. Bad things are bad things. And we've seen Job <clears throat> enjoying good things. Hey, when you have good things, let's enjoy them. And we see Job serving and giving to others. And all of this is present here at the end of the book of Job. And then it finishes and says this, Job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And then Job died old and full of days. (sighs) All the way back to the end of Job chapter two. Remember when the friends showed up and they sat in silence for seven days? Remember what I said that, that Christopher Ash pointed out in his commentary that, that sitting silently for seven days is what you would do to mourn when someone had died? That they're, in effect, they're sitting with Job the corpse who is as good as dead? Well, if that's the case, then this is as close to a resurrection as we're going to see in the pages of the Old Testament. Job was dead. Job was as good as dead. And now he is alive and thriving and healthy and doing well. And he gets to see his children to the fourth generation. It's not quite eternal life, but it's long life. This is a hint of resurrection. Christopher Ash, he writes this. He says, The purpose of the Lord to show mercy and compassion will be seen finally only when the Lord Jesus returns in glory. Job 42 anticipates the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like all Old Testament types of Christ, Job dies at the end of his story and his death proves that he is not the one to come, but merely one in whose sufferings are foreshadowed that one whose sandals neither Job nor any Old Testament prophet nor even John the Baptist will be worthy to untie. Friends, Job is pointing us to Jesus. Jesus, he lived a more righteous life than Job. And and Jesus suffered even though he was more innocent than Job. And Jesus died and was buried in the ground with wounds from the top of his head to the the soles of his feet. And the Bible tells us that his friends were sitting around mourning as though he were dead. But we know that on the third day, when the women went to the tomb to anoint his body with spices, they encountered some angels who said to them, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Friends, he is not here. He has risen. And so friends, for us, as we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we do not believe in a uh, a dead religious founder or a good moral philosopher or some ancient rabbi. We trust in a crucified and yet resurrected Savior who, though he died, is now alive forevermore. And Job's restoration points us to that. And one day, 
What Jesus has promised to us is that one day the end of the story will be more unimaginably good than we could possibly think or imagine. The end of the story is still yet to come. Friends, we're not in the end of the story yet. When we experience hardships, we are to remember that right now we are living in this tension, this overlap of the ages. Jesus really has come. He really has secured salvation for us. And yet he really will return one day to bring to its full consummation all of those things that he has promised. It just takes us right back to Romans 8 again. Right back to Romans 8. Going back to verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, look, I I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. We're going to be glorified, friends. We're going to experience pure glory. For the creation right now eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that that someday the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. But right now we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, this is so important for us to remember that Jesus has lived and he has died and he has risen again. And one day he will return and like him, we will all rise again. And right now we're still in the middle of the grand story of God's redemptive history. And so when we experience hardship and when we experience suffering, we, we're not glib and, and overly optimistic. We, we name it. It's really a real thing. And we, we try our best to enjoy the good things in life as they come. And we, we try our best to serve others and love others and not have the eyes on ourselves in our hardships and miseries. But we always have lurking in the back of our minds the hope of the final resurrection from the dead and the restoration of all things, the new heavens, the new earth, where there will be no more sorrow or sickness or sadness or tragedy or death. And even our very bodies and all of the created order will be brought into God's glorious alignment. Christopher Ash continues. He says, the blessings of the new heavens and new earth will be rock solid real. We look forward to beauty that makes the most beautiful woman in the world seem dull. We look forward to fruitfulness that will make the most abundant family in the world seem barren. We look forward to prosperity that will make the Forbes list of world's billionaires seem poor. And we look forward to a celebration that will make the best party in the world seem like a quiet glass of apple juice. (laughs) So let us remember what we ought to expect of the normal Christian life. Let us see what Job foreshadowed now fulfilled in the sufferings, faith, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and heavenly reign of Jesus Christ, let us expect to suffer with him if we will ultimately reign with him, for by grace we will. That is our hope, friends. One day we will reign with Christ and all will be made well. 
And until that day, we have to trust that we've been given the Holy Spirit to sustain us, that the very presence of God to sustain us. We, we, we call evil, evil. We try to enjoy the good things of life as we can in a humble and worshipful manner to God. We serve others out of the overflow of what God has given to us and we hope for the resurrection. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And while we wait, we live by the Spirit. I mentioned that we're going to start the book of Acts next week and one of the things I'm really excited about focusing on in the book of Acts is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's present with us. God is present with us through the Spirit that, that, that lives within us. We, we have the presence of God within us. And so I'll close this teaching time in the book of Job with one more quote from Eleanor Stump. And she says this, it is possible to suffer in human ways dreadfully and nonetheless in the face of the presence of God lose all desire to complain and be moved just by love of God and love of the connection to God. And if it is the case that in the presence of God, all the suffering will seem like a small thing by comparison with the love of God, if it seems so to Job in his suffering, then it can seem so to any other human being too. Job tells us that it is possible to be brutally real about suffering in this life and yet be so closely connected to God that even the sufferings of this present life seem like a small thing in comparison to his goodness and his grace. Lord, I thank you for our study in this book of Job. And Lord, as we, as I preach this and we are living through such a strange and painful and difficult year where so many things seem out of alignment. There's so, th those words of Romans 8 about all of creation is groaning. Those words have never seemed more real to me. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon, Maranatha. And while we wait for your return, while we await the final resurrection from the dead and the restoration of all things, would you help us to persevere like Job? Would you help us to have a face-to-face -face connection with you like Job? A face-to-face -face connection with you that doesn't diminish or, 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 or gloss over the hard things of life, but enjoys you in such a way that we can enjoy the things in this life and we can serve others who are also hurting. Be with us, I pray. Help us to live with that tension of the hardships and yet the hope that we have in eternity. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.